This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. We just were going over some of the recent virus headlines, including you see uh, France uh, imposing curfews in major cities, New Jersey seeing hospitalization spike. Uh, You also see um, other headlines, certainly. We just talked about New York getting kind of tougher when it comes to maybe threatening funding to schools and local governments that don't comply with New York State's shutdown order. So there's a lot going on. Uh, Our next guest we last caught up with back in July, Dr. Lisa Danzig. She's Chief Medical Advisor at CETF, which stands for COVID Early Treatment Fund. That was founded by uh, an entrepreneur and philanthropist, Steve Kirsch, this year amid the pandemic. And it's all about working on repurposing drugs to treat the virus. She also focuses on infectious diseases, and she spent over 18 years at Novartis. Uh, Let's bring her in. She joins us on the phone from San Francisco. Dr. Danzig, it is so nice to have you back with us. How are you? Thank you, Carol, for having me back. Uh, I'm doing well. We're super excited about the data that were presented last week on fluvoxamine. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Exactly what is fluvoxamine and and what is the data and and what it means for COVID-19 treatments? Yeah, this is kind of a great story. Who would have thought of a child psychiatrist? Mm -hmm. Uh, Angela Rearson, who is a really good researcher who pays attention to stress responses in cells and the activity of her drugs like fluvoxamine, which is um, an SSRI. It's uh, in the category of an antidepressant, and it's used in the United States for treatment of obsessive-compulsive disease. And what she had noticed, um, even last year, is there was a paper looking at fluvoxamine because it has these anti-inflammatory um, properties. It has this uh, mechanism called a sigma-1 receptor agonism. It's something that I hadn't even heard of, um, the, the role of sigma-1 receptor agonism in reducing this cytokine storm. And the cytokine storm is something that we all know too well. That's the thing that makes people really sick when they, um, uh, when they get hospitalized or when they get that late phase of COVID disease. So she had even seen last year some studies on fluvoxamine in a sepsis model. So back in the beginning of the year when COVID happened and we understood that there was an inflammatory component, she went to her chair and she said, do you think this could work? Hmm in COVID. And she was partnered by a geriatric psychiatrist, Dr. Eric Lenz, who's a real clinical trial veteran. And they set up a trial uh, and they really managed the unmanageable. They were able to do a trial in outpatients. And I think when we talked last time, uh, we talked about all the problems that we faced in doing trials in outpatients. First of all, the the majority of disease, people were getting so sick in hospitals, that's where the priority was. Right. But also, people are too sick to leave their house. One, they just feel horrible and they don't want to go to the doctor. Second, this is highly infectious. We don't want them to go to the doctor. So they managed to do a trial that kept people at home. They delivered a clinic in a, in a bag, if you will. Hmm. And they um, had to screen about 1,000 people, but they enrolled 152. And what they found out is that Of the patients, half the patients got fluvoxamine, half the patients got placebo, and they looked at objective criteria for deterioration. Eight out of the um, um, 80 subjects, or the 72, eight out of the 72 uh, placebo subjects 
deteriorated, which meant they dropped their oxygen stats and they had to go to the hospital. Zero of the people on fluvoxamine had the same wow. endpoint. So it, so it's yeah. a, it's a uh, tell me in the medical community is that consider <laughs> is that considered a really good response? Well, so that's a it's a statistically significant response. Okay. So it, it met um, a point oh oh nine p value if uh, if you want to look at that. This is a small study. This yeah. is a directionally interesting study. So we call this a really good reason to believe, and uh, you know we're very excited in following this up with a larger study. This is right. a study of a drug that prevented some of the dangerous complications of the disease, it's not, we don't know um, what the mechanism is. We, we're not really sure why. Mm. We don't know if it impacted viral replication. And so what we're interested in in the next study is actually pairing this with a drug known to impact viral replication. So, so doctor, tell us about the next step and, and the timing associated with that next step. Well, they're, they're working on a protocol right now. They're trying to nail down um, which which uh, candidate with antiviral properties they'll um, they'll deliver? Obviously, these things uh, these things aren't cheap, and so the the first trial they were able to do on a shoestring of about two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars. This next trial will will bear with it a price tag of about two million dollars, mm-hmm. and they want to use the same design, the, the same design that worked, keeping people at home, delivering them a study drug. Um, you know, randomizing them and delivering them study drugs so that they can participate in the in the trial remotely. So who would, you know, ideally be the type of patient that would get access to this? Like, who, who are we talking about? Just got about a minute left, and then we'll come back and talk some more. The um, patients um, that test positive. So this is this is a this is oh. a study for early disease. Okay. So if somebody is at home, if somebody has been identified as having um, been in contact uh, with COVID, they get a test. Their test is positive. They'd be eligible. A new newly positive test, mm-hmm. uh, with or without symptoms, you would be eligible for enrolling in a study. And is it a shot? Is it a pill? What is it? These are pills. These are, These pills. are pills. So, Dr. Danzig, as Charlie was just reporting, we've seen some high-profile uh, vaccine trials and, and others uh, over the recent days and, and weeks hit some uh, stumbling blocks. Talk to us about that. How sh- concerned should we be? How do you think about that? And does that make the need for therapeutics, not just vaccines, but also therapeutic testing, even more important? Uh, thanks, Paul. I, I, the, um, it's really important to put this into context. There have been over 1,800 um, registered studies of COVID-19 treatments, of which 1,052 are currently recruiting patients, uh, 349 of which are in the United States. And it's not uncommon at all to pause studies because of events that happen that require further information. Um, When you enroll a patient in a clinical study, they go through a process of informed consent, and there's always a line in the consent that says, we will make you, uh, um, we will inform you if we become aware of any information which may alter your willingness to participate in the trial, which may change our perception of what the risk is. And so it is normal when events that were unexpected occur in the trial, for us to fully, sometimes we stop and say, we really need to understand this. Is there anything there? Uh, we, we tend to be conservative as, as practitioners. We, we generally um, argue on the side of potential risk to patients. And so, you know, I don't have any hesitation in pausing a trial to collect the information to make sure it's that my worst nightmare isn't confirmed. And then we, we will get, and that may proceed on the basis of data. 
that um, that we generate. We don't know what these events are that were in the news yesterday. Uh, we know right. that there's a data safety monitoring border that is reviewing data that that recommended a pause. Um, in 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 the industry, that that could be nothing. It could be a concern. The fact that other studies didn't stop, that's reassuring to me because if there's something really generally of concern, they would um, have notified other manufacturers, and I, I don't believe that that has happened. So help me out here. Did you ever, like, go to buy honey or teas? <laughs> like, there's just such variety. I mean, you could pick a lot of consumer goods, and I, I guess I'm starting to get a little confused, um, Dr. Danzig, about, you know, we're pursuing this global effort, you know, multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar effort, it feels like, for a vaccine. But we're also increasingly, like the work you guys are doing, you know, finding treatments for those who come down with the virus at an early stage, at a moderate stage, maybe at a severe stage. And I do wonder, like, what is, is there a holy grail? Is there a cure? Like, what is the end game here? Or are we going to need all of this in order to successfully get society back to normal? Oh, we need all of it, Carol. I I mean, the vaccine is a long road, and you're seeing why it's a long road. We can make our most aggressive time frames, but real life happens. The data may work the way we want. The virus may may behave the way um, we expect, or we may get surprises. And in the meantime, 200,000 active cases in a day in the world, that's an alarming number. And and even if a, a percent or a fraction of a percent has a bad outcome, that's a large number, and we want to prevent that. So if we've got something that turns the disease back into a cold that prevents the inflammatory component, if we can get the holy grail, which is keep people out of the hospital and shorten their period of infectiousness, that impacts transmission. That kind of agent, I think we can see that on the horizon. You know, by January, we may have tested reasonable combinations where we can start treating people um, to the point where it impacts transmission, to the point where your risk of going out is lower. Um, and, and that's what we're working towards. We're working towards solutions both on the vaccine side and on the drug side because not everybody will get a vaccine, not everybody will get a vaccine right away, and we don't know right. how long the vaccines will work. And I'm going to ask the question that I know Paul's thinking too. It's like, <laughs> and in the meantime, wear a mask, right? And in the meantime, <laughs> you know, wear a mask get tested so that if you're positive, you can be isolated and we can have contact tracing and we can warn anybody else that has been come, that has been in contact right. so that they can double down on their isolation efforts and avoid downstream transmission. That's critical now. That's what we're seeing. We were worried about this October right. second wave. It's here. It, it should not be a surprise to anybody right. that it's here. Right. Page one of the playbook, wear a mask. Um, Dr. Lisa Danzig, thank you so much. Chief Medical Advisor, COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund, CETF, joining us on the phone from San Francisco. Great, great conversation. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Leave it to the amazing editor of Bloomberg Business Week, Joel Weber, to come up with the perfect line to get into this next segment. We're going to do a walk around the block with our own Peter Coy, economics editor, because there's a plethora of stories from Peter that are so relevant to our world, including uh, one that has to do with President Trump and some comments he made today. So let's bring in uh, Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He's on the remote access from uh, Massachusetts. Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week, also who's been working Working furiously uh, on the phone from New Jersey. Joel, I love that. Let's just, I just want to spend like hours with Peter Coy. 
<laughs> yeah, well, maybe just a couple minutes for now. Um, uh, but yeah. but because uh, we gotta we gotta keep him working. Um, the the story that he, he just w- had a quick take on this morning was actually Trump speaking to the the country's economic clubs, which yeah. so I thought was actually kind of interesting. And and Peter, what what was your takeaway from uh, from getting to watch that? Well, it's not his typical audience. It's a bunch of rich people. Some of them richer than he is. Um, generally prosperous business people who belong to the economic clubs in Washington, New York, uh, Chicago, Pittsburgh, uh, Florida, and so on. And he didn't seem as comfortable with that audience as one might expect, since they're mostly one percenters who generally agree with the Republican agenda of tax cuts and deregulation. There were times when he sounded even a bit defensive and worried that he didn't have their support. He he called out internationalists, lobbyists, uh, drug company executives, all of whom he presumed were part of his audience. Peter, what do we know about uh, the president's current standing uh, with big business, with Wall Street, with folks who benefit from uh, the Trump tax cut? Well, we they like the tax cut. They like but the we've, tax cut. We've seen some... Uh, Critical, pretty critical comments coming up from organizations like the Business Roundtable, which represents CEOs of some of America's biggest companies. And very often, CEOs don't want to be on the line themselves criticizing any administration, Republican or Democratic. But they will sometimes hide behind the voice of a roundtable like that, so they can't be sort of safety and numbers kind of thing. And some of the statements from the Business Roundtable have been fairly critical of the president and th- things like why can't we get uh, another round of stimulus done uh so this was this was interesting it, it continued that thing and you know, uh one of the things he said was hey i know some of you out there are democrats and i d- i don't understand what you're thinking you know some really bad things are going to happen if joe biden gets elected so uh, peter that was um obviously just this morning the the other story that you have in the current issue of the magazine is is not about the president at all but sort of uh, uh another elephant in the room which is the the fed and and i thought you had a um sort of a big idea you spent some time thinking about it and it's ultimately about the the fed being basically the most dovish fed in the history yeah. of yeah. the fed can you can you tell us more about how why, why that matters so much right now? But just a reminder, dovish means that you're soft on inflation and more worried about uh, unemployment, or the hawk would be the opposite. And the Fed traditionally was hawkish. It was probably more hawkish than the president, whoever was in office at the time, or Congress. And it was almost designed to be that way because you wanted to have the central banker be the tough guy, you know, the enforcer, the cop, who would try to make sure that the economy did not overheat and causing uh, runaway inflation. But now we're in the opposite circumstance where we're actually worried about inflation being too low and the economy being, being chronically weak. And the Fed has moved around to being, uh, and it's not just because Jay Powell is the chair of the Fed now. It was starting to happen under uh, Bernanke and Yellen as well. But I think with the actions of this past spring in response to the pandemic, and then now with Jay Powell jawboning Congress to do new stimulus and the interest rates being at zero and the new dovish language coming out of the Fed in August, it does seem as though it's the most dovish Fed in a century, namely forever for the Fed. 
Well, and it could work out, right? You you kind of play out the dream scenario, Peter. You know, if all this messaging yeah. from the Fed works, I mean, right? The economy improves, workers get more money, consumers yeah. open up their wallets, um, you know, and we all live happy lives. <laughs> right. If it all works That's out. That's obviously the optimistic scenario that the stimulus works and inflation moves up to 2%, which is the Fed's goal, and maybe even goes a little above it. That's the new thing that the Fed is doing now. It's saying it can actually tolerate or even welcome inflation overshooting the 2% target to make up for periods of undershooting. And that's good. It could be very interesting to see, assuming inflation does eventually get over above 2%, whether the Fed will be so willing to tolerate that after all. Well, you do wonder, Peter, right, is that potentially then the Fed being irresponsible? Cause, yeah. right? Irresponsible can, can... is a funny word here because <laughs> Paul Krugman said that, you know, the Fed almost has to, or any central bank almost has to commit to being irresponsible. And by irresponsible, he means, you know, more willing to target inflation than a traditional central banker would have been. Okay, Peter, we're going to change gears yet again because um, Sunday night we have uh, some new economics uh, professors win the Nobel Prize, yes. and you also, uh, I thought, scared up an interesting angle about that and, and sort of their work around au- auctions. How, how central uh, of a contribution have they made to sort of what has unfolded in, in auctions that we, some we see in our daily lives yeah. and, and others that we, we may not get to see well, as much? We don't necessarily see the auctions that are happening for, for example, uh, radio spectrum, but they affect our daily lives in a big way. Um, that's how the government uh, now make, gets uh, frequencies into the hands of, say, cellular phone companies, operators, um, through an auction. It used to be that it would just sort of allocate them without making any money. So the two things happen. One is you make money for the taxpayer, which is $120 billion just from the uh, radio spectrum, let alone other auctions. And second, presumably, if you design it right, you get the frequencies out more quickly, which means the innovation happens more rapidly, and you get them into the hands of the strong players who can do the most with them. It sounds like some really crazy smart stuff from two (laughs) folks at Stanford. Oh, have I ever heard that before? (laughs) It's it's an amazing story, and it really does make you think a little bit, you know, um, this idea of the winner's curse. I I love what you go into, and we're going to put it out online so people can dig a little bit deeper into it. Um, As we said, Wednesday in the Park with Peter Coy, uh, (laughs) a trifecta of incredible stories. Peter, always love checking in with you, so thank you so much. And check out certainly the current issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Also go to Bloomberg.com. You can find more of Peter's stories uh, for Business Week. Joel Weber, thank you to you, editor of Bloomberg Business Week, joining us from Massachusetts. Peter Coy, economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone from New Jersey. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser on Bloomberg Radio. Under my continued leadership, we will continue our V-shaped recovery and launch a record-smashing economic boom. We will end the pandemic with a safe and effective vaccine create 10 million jobs in the first 10 months of 2021, where we're going to have a phenomenal year. And we will soon be announcing, in my opinion, a phenomenal, a phenomenal record-setting third quarter and quickly return to full employment. 
All right, that, of course, President Trump giving remarks today to the Economic Club of New York. We just talked about that with uh, Peter Coy and Jill Weber. Uh, the president, of course, talking about the nation's economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. So how likely is this scenario that he has laid out in terms of the V-shaped 10 million jobs being created and a phenomenal record third quarter for companies and employment. Let's get into it in today's Business Week Economics segment. Let's bring in Bloomberg Economics Senior U.S. Economist, Yelena Shalecheva. She's on the phone in Long Island. Yelena, he's pretty optimistic, and I'm trying to counter that with another story on the Bloomberg that talked about a record number of U.S. corporate giants losing money in the pandemic. So when you hear that from the president, what do you think? Well, I think he's right about the third quarter, but uh, I'm afraid he's wrong about everything else. The third quarter will be a phenomenal uh, growth uh, quarter, I think. We're expecting 28% rebound in terms of economic growth, but that follows the 33% decline. So uh, the swing just doesn't mean much uh, in terms of what will happen uh, in the fourth quarter of the year and going into 2021. Uh, economic growth is slowing, and uh, in the absence of any fiscal package, that will mean growth will turn negative in the first uh, quarter of next year, according to our estimate. I think it's just uh, a matter of uh, the degree to what uh, you know, what kind of fiscal package we will get. Uh, we will get it regardless of the of the outcome of the election i think uh, it will be bigger in if uh, the democrats get uh, uh, both the presidential ticket and the senate it will be smaller otherwise but i think the markets and economic data will uh, you know push uh, the policymakers hand uh, one way or another all right yelena you know as i start to listen to some of these uh, third quarter earnings calls you know, I'm, I, I guess what I'm hearing is a lot of questions about 2021. It seems like investors have almost written off 2020, haven't we all to a certain degree? But you mentioned first quarter with no stimulus, negative GDP. How do you, how is your 2021 look at look for Bloomberg Economics? So we expect a, a fiscal package in the amount of $1.2 trillion, and that uh, will probably happen in the first quarter. Unfortunately, nothing before the election. And then, you know, we'll continue to grow. It's just that uh, the pace of growth will be uh, relatively slow because uh, we are not uh, fully recovered from the virus itself. So a lot will depend on whether we get uh, an effective uh, treatment or vaccine. Uh, we expect uh, growth in the vicinity of 3.5% next year. But uh, uh, that is predicated on uh, some fiscal stimulus, and uh, that is also predicated on uh, the, um, you know, the vaccine coming um, or an effective treatment at some point in the middle of the year. I think what's important to highlight is that there are a lot of risks uh, around this forecast, and uh, you know, a mere uh, resurgence of the virus, the lockdowns could uh, mean. Uh, a very much negative risk for the economy. And uh, it's also like the lack of um, people's uh, uh, personal income growth. So that will be, uh, uh, you know, that will define what happens to the biggest sector of the economy. All right. To be fair, we did get some big stimulus programs. We also had, you know, the Fed constantly doing things to make sure markets were working well and doing what they could in terms of their, you know, tool bucket. Um, Having said that, 
What do we expect to hear from the Fed between now and the end of the year, between now and now and the election, or do they kind of lay low at this point? They will probably lay low. Yeah. They have done a lot, and uh, they will will see what uh, happens over this period. So the FOMC meeting starts the next day after the election, and yeah. uh, the FOMC statement is uh, going to be published on Thursday of that week. Mm. So. I think it's going to be a little bit too early to uh, really make a, uh, any conclusions about uh, the future of the economy. So they will probably wait till the December meeting to to do anything. If we are in a contested election or things like that, and what can uh, the they still do at go, this point, though? What would they do QE? in December? More QE. Uh, more QE. More okay. QE. <laughs> so that's yep. it. Yeah, haven't he- haven't heard of it. <laughs> yeah, haven't heard of that one. Uh, so Elena, you know. I'm thinking at these job numbers, jobless claims we'll get again tomorrow. The numbers, you know, we're getting more jobs created, but at a slower and slower and slower rate, really calling into question the jobs market and the consumer. How are you guys thinking about it? So we think that uh, the progress in the labor market will slow down. We are not excluding a negative reading uh, for the months of October uh, in terms of payrolls. So, uh, you know, we have rebounded quite a lot, but uh, growth in jobs have been slowing down. So, uh, you know, there are some seasonality issues uh, also because uh, at this point, uh, the economy is expecting to add jobs at an increasing pace ahead of the holidays. But uh, will we see that this year? Probably not. So uh, we may see a negative rating when we get October payrolls. Yeah, it's just nutty. It's just nutty at this point. All right, Elena, thank you so much. Elena Shiletyeva, our senior U.S. economist at Bloomberg Economics, on the phone from Long Island. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Well, Carl, we've been playing up this value versus growth yeah. uh, discussion over the last couple of hours, and it's really something that market participants have been, you know, kind of weighing with uh, really all year as they try to think about this pandemic and, and how they should think about the other side. Leslie Marks, she's a chief investment officer and head of investment management for BMO Private Wealth Management Canada. She joins us on the phone from Toronto. So, Leslie, Again, Carol and I have having this discussion here about value versus growth, and it just it's really seems like there's a lot of dependency on your view of the pandemic and the economics uh, recovery uh, and t- timing thereof. How are you thinking about it as we head into this fourth quarter? Well, uh, I, think, I think you're right, uh, Paul, when you talk about the role of the pandemic on how growth versus value will perform and, and heading into the fourth quarter. I mean, the value trade is really going to be about a broader economic recovery as opposed to what we've seen uh, thus far over the last six months, which is um, companies that have done really well because they were beneficiaries through the pandemic. And I'll just use the technology sector as as an example. So what we want to see is a broadening out of the economic recovery, which we really don't expect to see until uh, 2021. And particularly, I I think uh, uh, what's necessary or a necessary precondition is a vaccine to broaden out that recovery. 
All right. So then where would you position some money, Leslie? Like what would be your, your, your positioning at this point as we kind of wait, right? It's really kind of a wait and see game here. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it really depends on your time horizon. I know that when you asked the question, Paul, at first, you were talking about the fourth quarter. Uh, for our client portfolios, we're much more focused on the longer term, so say 12 months out. And especially when you look towards what's happening in the fourth quarter uh, this year, um, it's going to make getting that market timing aspect even more challenging because we have a very unpredictable event on the horizon with the U.S. election. Um, so we need to think about both the short term and, and the impact of that outcome, as well as the longer term, which is uh, the economic broadening outlook for 2021. So when you think about positioning, what I would say is try to not focus on the next uh, quarter and think longer term. If you believe, which I do, that we will see an approved vaccine in 2021, then I think you can take comfort in a broad economic recovery that will kind of bring forward uh, the, the, the losers, if, if you may, um, that we've seen in uh, this year you know, the leisure companies, travel, anything where big groups of people are, are coming together will actually start to do really well in an environment where people have access to a vaccine. You know, it's interesting when you talk about the election, um, Leslie, because I do feel like we've kind of gone back and forth in terms of thinking it's going to be very close and it's going to be contested to, you know, others who are starting to kind of settle in on Wall Street saying, nope, we think there's going to be one clear winner. Um, what, is, what is your best guess on that? <laughs> well, you're asking a person sitting in Toronto, so I don't know if my best guess <laughs> I don't know. I think that actually is great. Yes. Like, you're kind of away from some of the noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe that's true. So for what it's worth, um, uh, I, I don't think that a contested election is priced into the market right now. And, and as you said, um, the consistency in the data in the polling data, which is showing uh, a clear winner with uh, Joe Biden. And not to say that that's necessarily going to happen. I think we're all very cautious to uh, make that call. Um, uh, that's why I do not think that a contested election is currently priced into the market. And that would be one thing that investors are certainly concerned about would add to volatility in the fourth quarter. I think any of the other scenarios, whether that is you know, a blue wave divided Congress or Trump is elected for a second term, uh, are unlikely to change the trajectory of, of the markets in the fourth quarter. So it's really just that one scenario that we have to worry about. So, Leslie, fiscal stimulus is also something else that's kind of been, uh, you know, kind of held up here. We've been talking about it for a long time. It seems like other countries uh, can kind of get the stimulus through that's needed. Uh, we're, we're having a problem here with this latest round here. How do you figure that or factor that in uh, to your outlook? Are you in the camp that says, oh, we're going to get something sometime, so don't worry about it? Yeah, I, to be honest, I'm surprised that the market is still reacting to disappointment around fiscal stimulus. Now, now, mind you, when we've had that negative reaction, we've seen, um, you know, like today, for example, down half a percent, um, not not a big deal. So it's not it's not a great reaction. But I, I think what you said is absolutely right, Paul, that we expect to see fiscal stimulus uh, after the election. If, if not, it's unlikely to come before, no matter what the outcome and our bull bullish stance on risk assets is really, um, it, it really rests on that, the importance of fiscal and monetary policy to support this economic recovery as, uh, as a result of this pandemic-related um, 
recession. So Leslie, well, I love talking about the U.S. Uh, it's a big, bad world out there. And if you didn't, is there another market, you know, beyond the U.S. that you find interesting at this point that you think investors should be keeping a watch in, uh, watch on, excuse me? Well, thank you for asking me the question, Carol, because uh, as you know, I do sit in yeah. Toronto, so it gives me an opportunity. <laughs> and we do um, we do allocate globally, uh, and it gives me an opportunity to talk a little bit about Canada. Um, uh, you know, our, currently, if I were to rank the markets on, on relative attractiveness, we still have uh, the U.S. equity market as, as our most attractive, but the uh, relative value um, and uh, appeal, I would say, of Canadian equities is certainly uh, coming up, especially when you think about the context of that value trade. The Canadian stock market is more cyclically biased. It's got a heavy allocation to energy and banks, which certainly haven't been the winners in, in the market recovery this year. And so if we see a sustained real economic recovery, uh, I do think that uh, Canadian stocks will do quite well. Our economy is also very much tied to our neighbors and friends south of the border uh, to the United States. So as long as the U.S. recovery continues, the Canadian economy should do quite well. Okay. Say thank you very much. And that wasn't <laughs> planned. <laughs> I had no idea you were going to go there. Um, Leslie, good to check in with you. Stay safe. Uh, Leslie Marks, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investment Management at BMO Private Wealth Canada on the phone from Toronto. Although I should have thought she would go there maybe, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You know, you think about Canada and north. investing up there, and there's so much market cap in the in the energy space yeah. as well. Yeah. You know, that's what makes it tough. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, good good to check in with her. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.